0: Welcome to Mysteries, Myths, and More. I'm your narrator, Joyce Keller Walsh. My intention is to use this podcast to tell a story each month, sometimes fiction, sometimes not, that I hope you'll find interesting, engaging, and provocative. Before I begin, I'd like to note that this is a politics-free zone. As I record this in early December, 2019, there is much going on in current affairs, both domestically and internationally. However, it is not my intention to comment upon them. Such matters are the subjects of books, television, radio, social media, magazine articles, news reportage, and other podcasts by more qualified analysts and commentators than me. Do I have opinions? Of course, but I'm here to tell stories. And this one, in the midst of the cacophony of political pundits, is meant to be a respite. Hope is the Thing with Feathers by Emily Dickinson. This poem, believed to have been written in 1861 and published posthumously in 1891. Emily Dickinson died at age 56 in 1886 in Amherst, Massachusetts, where she was born. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul... And sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard, and sore must be the storm That could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, Yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. This podcast is not about hope so much as it's about the thing with feathers that is a story about birds, in particular a red-shouldered hawk who still circles our house calling out in recognition, and our turkey, Arnie, who lived a very happy turkey life. Neither of them, however, dearly, were very melodious. I do understand that there are people who dislike or are phobic about birds. I fault Alfred Hitchcock for some of that just as I blame competitive shark hunts on Peter Benchley for writing Jaws and Steven Spielberg for filming it. Don't even get me started on Moby Dick. I don't blame that white whale one little bit, or bite. Indeed, there are predator birds and predator sharks, but I don't think we're in danger from either Jurassic velociraptors or cinematic sharknados. Anyway, back to birds. Some years ago, my husband and I moved from the city to the country for the purpose of bringing my mother to live with us after my father died and she developed mobility problems. The property has several outbuildings, a well-worn barn, a tractor-lean-to, and a chicken coop large enough to fit a flock of chickens and half a dozen turkeys. Contrary to popular mythology, we never found that turkeys and chickens couldn't live together. In fact, they did just fine. Our chickens and turkeys, by the way, were free-range pets. We did eat their eggs, but never, ever our birds. Our lives quickly became intertwined with not only chickens and turkeys, but an assemblage of wild birds that we fed in feeders and on our deck. Blue jays, red-bellied and downy woodpeckers, mourning doves, tufted titmice, or mouses, your preference, plus cardinals, sparrows, wrens, nuthatches, and many transients. The chickens were of mixed variety. Rhode Island Reds, Araucanas, Seabrights, Buff Cochins, and a few indeterminates. We had one very well-behaved rooster who never attacked us or anyone or anything. Having a harem of 20 or so hens kept him quite busy. The turkeys, three toms and two hens, were all broad-breasted bronzes, which, like their name, were full in the chest and iridescent bronze in sunlight. Arnie was the largest of them about 50 pounds at maturity, and the oldest of the brothers. We got them all as young pullets and put them in the chicken coop together. Without us having to explain it to them, they immediately understood the drill. Out in the morning after watering and feeding, free range all day in the yard and woods behind, and back in the coop at dusk when we locked it up. Same thing each day. All well and good in spring, summer, and autumn, but come winter we had to run a heavy-duty electric cord from the house down the incline to the heat lamp inside the coop in order to warm the birds and keep their water from freezing. Winter also posed another hazard. The incline from the house to the coop had to be shoveled out so we could get down there to feed and water the birds. Invariably, the path would ice over, and either of us on duty would slip and slide our way down to the coop, not always upright. Health-wise, the chickens were low-maintenance. They never had a cough or cold. The turkeys, despite their great size, were subject to foot problems and something like flu. I soon learned the best way to inject a turkey with an antibiotic was to cover its head with a towel, sling an arm around the body, and insert the needle into a soft spot under the wing in that great chest. As for infected feet, their talons sometimes had to be slathered with a special ointment to prevent infection. Did I ever see a turkey trot? Well, yes. Yes, I did. We were quite satisfied with our indoor and outdoor aviary, not looking to increase our flock in numbers or species. How then we came to feed a pair of hawks from our deck was completely accidental. It was a summer late afternoon when a friend called us to say that there was a dead or dying hawk in his yard, and could John come over and look at it? When John arrived, he could see the bird was indeed near death. It was likely, he thought, that the hawk had ingested a mouse or rat that had been poisoned. Assuming it was soon going to expire and not wanting to leave it there, John brought the bird home and placed it on a bed of grass and hay in one of the beagle pens behind the house that the previous owner had built for his dogs. Hunters in our area typically keep their dogs in outside cages on stilts. The dogs stand on wire so that their elimination falls through to the ground. These particular cages were only large enough for a small dog to stand, turn around, and lay down. Heartbreaking, but alas, not illegal, as long as the animals have food, water, and shelter from the elements. As the sun went down, we really did not expect the hawk to survive the night. But it did. It hadn't moved from where John placed it the night before, but the bird was still breathing. So we began to try to feed it with a dab of hamburger on a piece of straw and give it water with an eyedropper. It took a little, but very little. Again, we did not expect it to survive the next night. But it did. Little by little the hawk began to move. Then, over the following days, it stood up and took food and water on its own, and finally it had regained enough strength to make a complete recovery. Ultimately, it was time to release her back into the wild, which we planned to do the following day. But when we went down to the pen that morning, it was empty. Clever hawk! She found a way to push through the small gap in the cage and fly out. To our dismay, however, she chose to fly no farther than the roof of the chicken coop, where she was apparently contemplating her next Chick-fil-A. Desperate to avoid that particular buffet, we put the food for her on our deck railing. We soon learned that chicken gizzards were her favorite, no surprise, although she was partial to beef heart as well. She never once passed up a free breakfast on a platter, so to speak, for one on the hoof, or chicken foot, as it were. Our flock was secure, even if our wallet was not. Between feeding the chickens, turkeys, wild birds, and hawk, we joked that we were spending almost as much on them as on my mother, who fortunately had a sense of humor. The red-shouldered hawk is medium-sized, with reddish shoulders, hence the name, barred wings, and a long tail. They're considered forest dwellers and partial to deciduous swamps. Well, we just happened to live at the edge of the Great White Cedar Swamp in southern Massachusetts. Bad for mosquitoes and eastern equine encephalitis, but good for hawks and other swamp denizens. Sadie, we determined she was female by her greater size, began to come on call. Watching her fly or gliding aloft on thermals conjures up images to me of the Wright brothers' successful flights at, maybe not a coincidence, Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. Even though the town is not actually named after a hawk. I like to think of Orville and Wilbur there, looking upwards, eyes shaded against the sun, aspiring to glide on air like a graceful raptor. As long as John and I had chickens, and continuing on beyond, we put the gizzards or chunks of beef heart on a tray on the railing and shout, Hawk! 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 into the air. Within seconds, it seems she'll come into view, responding with her own version of, Here I am! Here I am! She'll circle overhead, then swoop down and, in one motion, grab the meat in her talons and continue the loop upwards. This was a daily ritual then and now. She'll often grab the food even before we leave the deck. Once she came so close that she brushed my hair with her wing. Hawks in many legends are spirit animals, bringing messages, sometimes positive, sometimes not, from the spirit world. We don't typically mythologize animals anymore, but I wonder if we've lost some creativity or artistry by that. The following spring, after Sadie wintered over, she took a mate. Hawks tend to be monogamous, and nested in a tall tree on the other side of our garage where we could see her and she could see breakfast. The most heartwarming thing happened next. As we were sitting in our living room with a large picture window overlooking the back deck and woods beyond, we saw Sadie with one of her young ones fly by. We soon realized that she was teaching her progeny how to swoop down and pick up the food from the tray, kind of flight academy. Sadie knew us by sight, whether we were in our own yard or neighbors. Over the years, whenever she saw us, she'd give her cry of recognition. Or maybe it was just, feed me, feed me, feed me. Hawks can live for twenty or more years, but we don't know how old Sadie was when we found her, so we don't know whether the hawks circling our house now and eating the gizzards include Sadie or are just the next generation. This past summer, however, for a while the hawks gave way to another visitor. It's not unusual for the hawks to prefer to hunt on their own during the summer and return for cafeteria food when their prey, little mice and such, finds indoor sanctuary from the New England winter. We awoke one morning to a bird call we hadn't heard before. In Greek mythology, ravens were thought to be bad luck. As the tale goes, the god Apollo sent a white raven to spy on his lover. When the raven returned to tell him that the god had been betrayed, Apollo scorched the white raven, turning its feathers black, which is the color of all ravens since a sort of scorch-the-messenger fate. The Old Testament Bible is somewhat ambivalent about the bird. In one interpretation, the raven is a provider. In another, the raven is sinful. They do eat carrion and baby birds, so there is that. Ravens have always gotten mixed reviews through the centuries and to the present day. Since the 1600s, there have been resident ravens on the grounds of the Tower of London, tended to by a raven master. What a great job! There are at least half a dozen, which I saw when I was there. The myth is, if they leave, the crown will fall and all of Britain with it. Don't know where that legend arose, but these are very well-fed, well-kept ravens, Brexit or no Brexit. On the other hand, the portrait of ravens for us Americans is associated with death. That image comes from their libelous characterization in Edgar Allan Poe's poem, The Raven, published in 1845. And I quote a familiar stanza. Prophet, said I, thing of evil. Prophet still, if bird or devil. where the tempter sent, or where the tempest tossed thee here ashore. Desolate yet, all undaunted, on this desert land enchanted. On this home by horror haunted, tell me truly, I implore. Is there, is there, balm in Gilead? Tell me, tell me, I implore. Quoth the raven nevermore. Well, ravens don't quoth, they kind of cronk. Their call is louder than the caw of a crow, although both birds are all black and shiny and belong to the same Corvidi family. The raven has a larger bill and is almost twice the size of a crow. What we had turned out to be a pair of ravens. I call them Heckle and Jekyll after the cartoon magpies. Magpies are cousins of crows and ravens, but customarily either black and white or blue-green. Called the chatterboxes of the same Corvidi family, They aren't generally found in the eastern United States. However, they are estimated to be extremely intelligent. I personally think crows and ravens are extremely intelligent also, as some recent documentaries have shown. So much for bird brains. So, Heckle and Jekyll come daily to pick up the gizzards and other meats we put out, but not in the same way as the hawks. Their behavior, not being birds of prey, is different. Instead of swooping down, grabbing the food, and looping up and away, they are much more cautious. Typically, the ravens land one by one on the roof, peering down at the tray of food below. Once satisfied that there's no lurking danger, the first raven jumps to the railing, looks diligently round, picks up the morsel in its beak, looks around again, and flies off with it. Then comes the second raven, and repeat. We enjoy having the ravens, as we no longer have any chickens or turkeys, which eventually died, unharried by hawks. Arnie was our last turkey. He became a kind of legend, because... Maybe starved of avian company. He liked to ride in cars. How we discovered this is that one day a friend of ours stopped by when we were out. As he went back to his car and opened the door, Arnie, who had come to greet him, jumped in. With our turkey-riding shotgun, Jeff continued on his way to the local pub. He took Arnie in with him to the delight of the other patrons, if not the bartender. Arnie did not get liquored up, but our bird must have had such a good time that, we were told, he became a regular with Jeff when we were out. One mid-November, near the end of his days, Arnie developed a foot infection that couldn't be cured with ointment. John brought him to Boston's Angel Animal Medical Center, run by the Massachusetts Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, where they determined that Arnie had to have minor surgery on his foot. The veterinarians debrided the infected tissue and filled it with some sort of compound to prevent further damage. It just so happened that a Boston Globe newspaper reporter was there to do a story on the hospital. He took pictures of Arnie being worked on and published it in the newspaper's Thanksgiving edition over the caption, Another way to serve Turkey. On his way home from the hospital with post-op Arnie, John stopped off at the South Shore Plaza, a huge mall with a huge parking lot, to pick something up. When he came out, however... He'd forgotten exactly where he parked his car amidst the rows and rows of pre-holiday shoppers. As he walked up and down the aisles, he was followed by a well-attired young couple similarly searching for their own, most likely upscale, car. Daunted by the challenge of locating his car among the hundreds of vehicles, John suddenly remembered Arnie. So John gobbled, and as typical, Arnie gobbled back. With repetition, John echo-located his car with the young couple, doubtless dumbfounded, not far behind him. One can only imagine what they must have thought of the man who looked so normal, but drove around with a turkey in the car for his GPS. Gobble positioning system. We may remember that Benjamin Franklin wanted the turkey to be the national symbol of America rather than the eagle. Why? Evidently, he felt the eagle was a bird of bad moral character because it steals food from others and because the turkey would attack a British redcoat. Was Franklin being serious or humorous? Certainly people have taken him seriously. As for the turkey's courage in attacking the enemy of the American Revolution, turkeys can see in color. Did they really attack the redcoats? I can only attest to the fact that Arnie ran relentlessly after a friend of ours who was wearing red Bermuda shorts. And never chased anyone else. For a few years after Arnie died, we had a flock of about 40 wild turkeys in our backyard every day looking for all the world like prehistoric stegosauruses munching grass. But they have since moved on and we only occasionally see any around the area. Let me correct the myth, however, that turkeys can't fly. It's true that Arnie didn't. He was too heavy and after all, why should he? But the wild turkeys spent every night sleeping in the tall pine trees behind our house. And by tall, I mean over 30 feet high. At dusk, they would line up in our driveway like B-17s awaiting takeoff. I can almost hear you say, wait a minute, Joyce, what do you know about B-17s? Well, I taxied inside one once. Some years ago, as John was returning home from offices in London, he read in a British newspaper about the financial difficulties of the last airborne flying fortress in the U.K. The plane was grounded for want of new tires and other repairs, all very expensive equipment and maintenance. Being the pilot himself of a 1948 Luscombe, a high-wing aerobatic plane, the antithesis of a World War II bomber, he empathized with the plight of the famous warbird. John wrote to the owners of the Sally B., Ted White, and Ellie Salingbow to offer help. Although we couldn't give financial assistance ourselves, perhaps there was something else we could do. And there was. I wrote articles for every aviation magazine we could find requesting donations to be sent directly to the Sally B. Preservation Fund. And we placed ads for the purchase of memorabilia from the fund. We also contacted actor Jimmy Stewart, because he famously flew B-24s in World War II and instructed pilots in flying B-17s. I don't know how much was raised through him and others, but we received a lovely thank you from Ellie Salingbow. The following year, I accompanied John to England for a conference. We just happened to see a poster on a wall of the underground subway advertising a huge air show at Biggin Hill in Southeast London, where the Royal Air Force had a fighter base. Not only did it promise to be a spectacular event, one of the exhibits listed was the Sally B. and was going to be held on the one weekend we would be there. Naturally, we went. That Saturday, we took the train to Biggin Hill. As we walked the grounds, admiring all the aircraft, we searched for the Flying Fortress. And there she was. We went over and introduced ourselves to Ted White. I'm not sure where Ellie Sellingbow was just then. Who, to our delight, asked if we'd like to get into the plane? Oh, yes. The interior surprised me, even though I'd seen lots of war movies. Without airmen and equipment filling the plane, I realized how stark it was, how metallic, how basic, but how sturdy and how historic. Slowly, the plane noisily moved away from its display, Ted White piloting. I could feel the engines rumble through my bones. And then there we were, taxiing around the airport. We didn't get airborne, but we could sense what power and speed it would have needed to take off from a runway. It was really a thrill. Anyway, that kind of lumbering to gain airspeed and lift off is just how the wild turkeys flew up into the trees. The first turkey would run down the driveway as fast as it could and flap its wings so hard we'd hear it inside the house, then up and up it would go. Unlike the flying fortress, however, not all the turkeys made it directly into the air. Some would have to use the top of the barn as a staging area before flying onto the treetops, and some embarrassingly crashed into the limbs on their way up, leaving branches and twigs to fall on the ground. But in the end, I think they all made their roosts every night at one level or another. As I think about it, maybe that's where hope comes in. We hope to succeed. We hope to achieve. But it's courage that gets us airborne, knowing you might falter or crash, but flying full speed ahead into pine trees anyway, or in the case of B 17s, into flak and crossfire. So in the end, Hope may be the thing with feathers, but I submit to Emily D. Determination is the thing with wings. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll come back for the next podcast when I hope to interview another author. If you like this podcast, please download and subscribe. It's free, and you'll find it on your favorite directories such as Apple, Google, Stitcher, Tune In, and more. To learn more about me and my books, go to JoyceWalsh.com.